Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Book Club podcast. You're about to join Angela Marafino as she discusses books written by hackers, about hackers, and for hackers, as well as sci-fi and other tech-adjacent topics. Unwind from the daily grind with interviews with the authors and commentary from the Hacker Book Club members. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Level Effect's mission is to make the cyber world a safer place by arming individuals with the knowledge needed to defend themselves and their organizations from digital threats. Learn more at leveleffect.com. Angela Marafino. This is the Hacker Book Club podcast. Today we have Sunil Yu and Caroline Wong. Hi, both of you. How are you? Hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. Hello. Doing good. (laughs) Great. Great. Um, I'm sure by now most everybody knows who both of you are, but if you could please give a brief introduction, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Hello, I'm Caroline. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt. I started working in cybersecurity 17 years ago, leading information security teams at eBay and at Zynga. Very cool places to be working in cybersecurity. And at Cobalt, we build security software. Thank you. I I want Caroline to go first so I can drink more caffeine. (laughs) She's she's so enthusiastic. I wanted to have the same. Uh, anyway, so I, I'm Sunil Yu. I'm currently the CISO at uh, Jupiter One. And before that, I was the CISO in residence at YL Ventures. And then before that, the uh, Chief Security Scientist at Bank of America. If you're wondering what a Chief Security Scientist does, it's a formal t- title for what is basically a mad scientist. So that was my unofficial title. Now I have so many questions that aren't relevant to this <laughs> podcast. So we'll touch base again another time on that. No problem. <laughs> So you both are featured in Modern Cybersecurity, Tales from the Near Distant Future, which was recently read in the Hacker Book Club, and it was phenomenal. We had Mark Miller there, as well as Sunil. Thanks again. But it was, it was really awesome. And then you both have your own books. So I'll ask some about the Modern Cybersecurity book first, and then we'll go off on the separate books. But just a little bit of background. First of all, I just want to know like what your writing processes were that like like did you do, you both okay, Caroline, you had a book before you did the chapter, correct? I did. Okay. And Sunil, was this your first time writing something? Not kind of not like, contributing to a book, but maybe like the third or fourth one. Okay. And then but, and then you and then you came out with another but then you published another book, right? So yes, right. <laughs> so Caroline, you kind of knew what you knew what you're getting into. Do you all want to kind of go through like your writing processes from like the chapter to then a full book. I'm sure, Caroline, for you, you were like, I can do anything now. You want a chapter from me? Here you go. You know, it is like anything, which is to say that when you start doing it or when you do it for the first time, it's really hard and it takes a super long time. And like maybe your first draft is not something that you feel super good about, but then you do it more and more and more and you just get better at it. 
The first book that I wrote actually was published in 2011, so it had been quite some time. But this particular chapter was really fun for me. And I think that for me, I tend to think about interesting new ideas at random times. So if I'm out walking with my dog, or if I'm like taking a shower, like this is when things come to me. It's not so much when I'm sitting in front of my laptop with, you know, an open Google Doc. And so for me, a lot of the writing process ends up being just paying attention to my brain throughout the day. And then if something interesting happens, just like writing it down in my notes app and then and then bringing it all together. It, okay. it ends up being sort of this consolidation of a lot of random thoughts. Right. Sunil, what about you? I'm not sure if I can say I have a process. I think in the um, capability maturity model for writing, I would rank you know, the proverbial zero. <laughs> and maybe that showed in terms of how long it took me to actually get a book out. But very much like Carolyn, I, I, I come up with random thoughts all the time. Unfortunately, they get lost in between the shower or a walk and when I, when I can actually find pen and paper and write it down. So yes, that's unfortunate, but eh, such is life. The, the other thing that makes it really hard for me is um, I, I have a high bar for, I, th- I think we all have a high bar for what we consider to be like perfection or what we want to see come out of whatever we want to present to the world. And I think whether it's writing or open source software or whatever, but we're oftentimes very embarrassed by what we produce thinking, uh, yeah, there's all these flaws and all these things that, you know, it's not so great, but I, I've, I've been shocked actually by just the kind of reception that uh, oftentimes happens when you release something for people to consume and they don't even see the flaws. They see past them, right? And it's uh, it's a good reminder to say, you know what, even if it's, even if you think it's flawed, the process that we go through to release our content should not be held up by our perception of what might be flawed. Sure, I totally agree. And, and Caroline, you mentioned kind of one of my other questions which was right did you have most of the like idea of what you wanted to write about before writing about it or was it like I have an inkling of what I want to write and then more will come to me hopefully by x date yeah I think that for me one of the things that I've noticed about my writing process and how it's evolved over time is that I used to just depend really highly on like if I was going to give a talk then I if it was a brand new talk, I might finish that talk at like 3 a.m. the night before and sleep for like a couple of hours before I wake up, try and get as much caffeine into my system as possible. And then I'm just like running on adrenaline. And then hopefully, you know, the initial talk delivery goes okay. Now, what I try to do is I try to get a first draft out sooner. Mm-hmm. Because what I find is, and I actually, you know, writing for a chapter for a book is one thing, but I, I do tend to give a lot of talks. And so I find that if I can get a draft down at some point in time before the night before, and then if I can revisit it a couple times, every time it just gets better. This particular book that we contributed to uh, was such a pleasure because it was so open ended. And so it gave us an opportunity to just say stuff that's meaningful to us. And so I got to say things like, 
hey, all, I think the hardest problems to solve in this industry are not technology problems. I think they're people and process problems. Hey, uh, I've noticed that if I put the 2021 version of the OWASP top 10 next to the 2003 version, they're sort of alarmingly similar. Like what is happening, you know? And so a format like a chapter is a nice size, you know, and then working with folks like Sunil and with Mark, you know, it's just a pleasure of a group because you know, you're going to get a lot of support no matter how crazy your ideas are. Sure. Since you started quoting your, your chapter, which is for those listening, the future of security cloud native, the hardest problems to solve in cybersecurity are not technical is on the first page. (laughs) And I really was like, yes, but there's so much other great stuff in this chapter. But what I really like is the way you kind of made it fun and like light. Like we're talking about three-legged races, high school musical is in this chapter. There's so many things that you were just like, I gotta make it. I'm going to personally make it about my interests and I'm going to make it in a way that people can understand without being super technical. I love the three-legged race analogy. Did you come up with that or did you steal it? I came up with it. I, I just it. actually, I just, it's actually just the way that I think, like the way that I think is in three-legged races and lyrics from High School Musical. And so it's the way that I think, it's the way that I communicate. You know, I would love to read a version of something that I talk about. Because one of the things that I tried to write about is how everything is so interconnected. And I thought about, you know, historically, when I used to work with security teams and talk with security people. So security people are all about analogies. And security people used to have this story that they would tell about how to think about cybersecurity. And so the story says, if Angela and I are running away from a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to run faster than Angela. And so in this scenario, the underlying assumption is that I value myself and I don't value you. My success doesn't depend on you. So as long as I get away from the bear, it doesn't matter to me if you become the bear's lunch. And so that's a problem. That analogy doesn't work because software companies and the value that are that's created by these organizations it doesn't exist independently of each other and so i really believe that the appropriate analogy for how things work in cybersecurity is a three-legged race because we have to work together and this is how it happens the reality is security happens as a result of many different people making decisions and taking actions or not taking actions. And then security emerges as a property from all of those different interactions. Can we take it a step further and say, and you don't need an expensive bag to run the three-legged race in? Absolutely. I think that there are all sorts of interesting factors, right? So I think that sometimes there is a person who works in security And that person wants everyone else to think they're really smart. And so they choose to use language that is boring and technical and hard to understand. And they may actually achieve that objective. People may actually walk away from that conversation thinking like, wow, that person's really smart. But but what if you actually want that person to walk away from the conversation thinking, I get it. Now I know what you're talking about and what I need to do to make things better. I think that's actually better outcome than the former. Agreed. Yeah, you want people to leave feeling that they are smarter. If they feel like you're smart, then you've actually not accomplished the goal, which is really to to instruct and to help people become smarter. Uh, by the way, Caroline, I, I really like the uh, the three-legged analogy as well, because uh, the three-legged race analogy. There's one variation that would make it, though, which is to turn it from a race 
to turning around and facing the bear. Oh. I, I, the way that I've characterized or thought through this is I don't like the analogy that we're, you know, the bear analogy, because to, to your point, uh, we're sacrificing our vendors, our supply chain, our, our partners, and trying to make our security better, but not necessarily theirs. And uh, I made this comment when I saw this, this mention of my former employer having a billion-dollar cybersecurity budget, which is ginormous for any security team that is woefully under-resourced. But the outputs from my former employer are fairly sparse. There's, there's very little to show for that billion dollars. I mean, sure, great. Company's more secure, and we don't see breaches coming out of it. But is there anything that helps my partner? Is there anything that helps my vendor? Is there anything that they commit to the open source? And, and they, unfortunately, the answer is no. And it's not because we don't have talented people, but because well, for whatever reason, we, we choose not to, right? We choose not to help the person next to us. And my view is, let's help the person next to us and stop running and actually just turn around and say, hey, bear, we're actually, we can raise our hands and be bigger than you. <laughs> and we start chasing the bear. Anyway, I don't know if we'll actually end up chasing the bear, um, but... But the point is, I, I don't, I'm stop. I'm, I don't want to keep running, right? I want to face the bear together, and the only way to do that is to to be strong together as well. Yeah, we should be hunting the bear. We should be teaming That's up right. and hunting the bear instead of running away from the bear and just trying to be faster than each other. It's it's actually it really is a different paradigm shift, and I think that the thing about cybersecurity is that software and the internet was made by people. And we are people, so we can actually decide what to do with it. We just haven't decided that what we're going to do is hunt the bear. We haven't decided that what we're going to do is find and fix and prevent security vulnerabilities, even though we know how to do those things. We haven't decided that that's what we're going to do. And I think that people could get excited about bear hunting, you know, but what people don't get excited about is asset inventory and checking to make sure that your backups work. Like, those are things... You know, I I wish that we could figure out a way to get people excited about testing their backups in a way that maybe we could get excited about hunting a bear. That is something that if we could figure out how to do that, we could actually like security is possible. We just don't do the things. We need a backup rewards process. Yeah. Every time you test your backup, you get a reward. What would that be? Hmm. So, so let me let me challenge that notion. I, I I'm trying to think. How do you make backup exciting? And I'm not sure if I can make backup exciting. But there's a different story behind backup, which is how do I convince people to do backup and make it seem not like backup? Okay, the narrative there, to in my mind, is something like iCloud. Mm-hmm. Think about iCloud. iCloud is backup, right? But how's the story told? It's, you like to have your pictures available on any device anywhere, your family photos, right? Things that you treasure and things that you want to be able to have at your fingertips. And of course, the answer for many people is yes. In fact, not only that, but I'm willing to pay extra for it. It's fundamentally backup, but it certainly doesn't feel like backup. And, and I don't think the consumers who use iCloud, I don't think see it as backup as much as, hey, I get my photos everywhere I want to go. Mm-hmm. Until you lose your phone or get it stolen, and then you're like, eh. and then you're like, well, no, no, exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's like, well, sure, I'm glad I have it on my iCloud, right. right? But it makes the phone itself immaterial. Who cares that you like? Well, I mean, besides the, the cost of the phone, but it is backup at, at the end of the day. But that's not why like, I don't think people look at it or 
are driven to it because of backup. They are driven to it because it gives them the ability to access photos and things that they would otherwise not have space for, you know, whatever. I think that's brilliant, right? Because iCloud is cool and backups are not. (laughs) And the reason we're talking about backups is because ransomware is like all the rage, right? Mm -hmm. So last year, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, Colonial Pipeline, JBS, what's happening? Are they attacking our food supply on purpose? No, our digital systems are very vulnerable. And the first ransomware attack actually happened in 1989. (laughs) And if we would just do a couple of pretty simple things, including backups, then, you know, ransomware would actually be impossible. But if iCloud is cool and backups are not, how do we make backups cool? I don't know the answer, but I think that there's something really exciting right around that corner. Yeah, I think it's, and it's a reframing, right? It's, it's a narrative that's told maybe not necessarily by the security team, but if there are, if there's a pattern to be followed, if we can discover that pattern that drives people to say, yeah, let's do this because it adds business value. And yet it's fundamentally part of the security principles that we've been arguing for forever, right? Then that's, I think we can unlock some really uh, interesting, I guess, patterns that help us move the ball forward as it relates to some of these things we've been wanting to do for a long time or making, you know, to make it more exciting and more interesting for folks. Agreed. You mentioned assets. Sunil, you're all about assets these days, probably always, but specifically lately. I wanted to ask with your cyber defense matrix, are you also including in your what is a cyber asset anything physical like i know you mentioned users but is that users as a concept of a username and password or are we talking about the people the places yeah so my excuse on this one is it's a cyber defense matrix not a physical defense matrix sure so you know it's it's not meant to be a model that fits every paradigm that we see in reality or i love george box's quote which is all models are wrong but some are useful so the goal here isn't to make a perfect model as much as just to make a model that's useful. And for those who don't uh, aren't familiar with it, it's a simple mental model. It's a five by five bingo card. And the five asset classes are devices, applications, networks, data, and users. And then the other dimension is the five functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. So identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Uh, on the bottom of the matrix, I show this uh, degree of dependency curve between people, process, and technology. And there's something in that curve that actually echoes something that Carolyn mentions in her chapter around automation. Many of us in security, or many vendors at least in security, think that automation uh, is that we do automation for everything, that uh, there's this huge emphasis on just automating everything and automating it as much as possible. But there's a limit to that. I think there's a fundamental limit to how much automation we can introduce. And I, I make a somewhat of a uh, conjecture in the matrix that says on the functions of identify and protect, automation's great. And we want to do as much automation as possible. And we want to rely on machines and technology to do a lot of that work. But when you get to detect, respond, and recover, automation is still useful there, but it starts, we start depending less on automation and more on humans. And that shift is largely because at that point, some, someone's found a way to circumvent technology. Mm-hmm. So will technology, will, will more technology help you there? Or do you need humans to go figure out what broke, what happened that was unanticipated? And automation uh, will help with some of that, but not really 
some of the fundamental re- reasons as to why something broke. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that's a major part of the matrix that helps us calibrate our expectations around where technology is most useful and where human understanding is most useful. I like that you mentioned that because I know, Caroline, you also mentioned in your chapter about how there's entire classes of security vulnerabilities that can only be discovered by humans. And so, you know, well, Sunil's chapter was banging and really I think they all kind of (laughs) touch on something that he addressed, but you're paired together really well. But, you know, a lot of people are stressed about automation. How long in the future do you foresee this being the case? Like we, we need humans and we need them more frequently. So I think we're always going to need humans. I think that there are things that machines are really good at doing and we should have the machines do those things. But there are things that machines just straight up cannot do. Like machines today can't find race conditions. Maybe one day they'll be able to. Machines today can't find business logic flaws. I don't, think they're ever going to. Or if you can get a machine to do it, then you've actually put so much manual work into customizing that machine that you might as well just consider it not automated. Chained exploits, finding chained exploits can't be automated today. And so those are just on the defect discovery side. You know, finding security vulnerabilities is one thing. And there are tons of types of security vulnerabilities that machines are really good at finding, but there are some that they can't. Now, The thing about, so this is a thing that I think is very funny, that we as an industry have like a ton of frameworks and some of them are like really good and some of them are like really overly complicated. And a lot of them talk about how you should do defect discovery. But some of them don't talk about how you need to do remediation. Some of them don't talk about how you need to actually fix stuff and address risk. And the thing about fixing stuff and addressing risk is that this usually involves a security person working with an engineer to get code changed. Mm -hmm. That is not something that humans are even that good at, let alone passing that off to a machine. Right. I guess the machine could create tickets, which sounds terrible. Machines can create tickets. Absolutely. But having creating a ticket and getting someone to actually do something, those are two entirely different things. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that I listened to both of your cyber therapy podcast episodes, (laughs) which are really great and fun. Sunil, you referred to your cyber defense matrix as the Marie Kondo. Yes. (laughs) I love that. That's also Uh, a a great analogy. Can you restate it here a little bit? Sure. So the cyber defense matrix is a organizational system. Uh, at its core, it helps you organize all these very disparate things. And so I, I was relating it to Marie Kondo and that she is great at helping you organize things and asking the question, does it give you joy? Right? Does this product, does this security capability give you joy? And unfortunately for most of us, I think we all know, no, it doesn't give us joy. Uh, <laughs> are there things that we can get rid of? And when you can start putting things into the appropriate boxes and see that you have four of the same thing, yeah, you know what? Maybe you can get rid of a couple of things because none of these actually give you any joy. In fact, it just creates more noise for you. So that's one way to think about the matrix. The other way to think about the matrix is, we, we talked about this a moment ago around analogies. In many ways, the matrix is a way to systematically think through analogies when it comes to how we solve problems in cybersecurity. Let me give you an example. 
on the device space, we learned that in an unbounded environment where, uh, like Windows, where uh, users can download some software and run code on that uh, computer may not be a great idea. So why don't we create boundaries and constraints? Or if we can't create those boundaries and constraints, we at least have some mechanism like AV that introduces a block list that denies the execution of certain known bad code. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, we know that pattern. We played that pattern out. The cyber defense matrix allows us to think through that pattern and say, where does that pattern also fit when other problems that we're dealing with? Essentially a built-in analogy, if you will. Okay. So let me take that analogy and say, well, today in many CI/CD environments, we take unknown code written by various authors with professional backgrounds, and we're allowing that to run without any sort of checks or any sort of validation in our development environments. Is that a good thing? And of course, the answer is no. We can create a lot of chaos and headaches as a result. So how do we bound that environment? Well, should we look at some sort of block list approach, or are there alternative approaches. But the point is that if there's a parallel, the parallel allows us to take that template and say, can that apply in these other domains like applications? Does that apply in, in networks? Does that apply with data? Does that apply with users? And the answer may be no, but I would, before we uh, say no right off the bat, it may require us to think through and reconsider how, what does a block list look like when it comes to users? What does a block list look like when it comes to data? Mm-hmm. We have to reframe the thinking around it, and all of a sudden you'll realize, oh, yeah, we actually can do something like this for this other domain. And having the ready-made analogies that we, or the solutions that we see in these other domains helps us see potential solutions in domains where we're still struggling to solve certain problems. Absolutely. I think it's hard, too, for a lot of people if they see something they want to, you know, start looking at as far as like your matrix or something similar, something probably not as good. (laughs) They try to meet every single thing in there and it may not always, every single piece may not be applicable, right? And I think a lot of people will get hung up on trying to meet all of them, but it may not fit their organization or what they, you know, have planned strategically. So I think it is good to like, not only just think through like what you want to do, but also uh, look at more than one matrix, for example, uh, potentially yeah. and see which one fits best. I, I mentioned earlier, um, the matrix is an organizational system right. and it helps you organize disparate pieces of information. One of the things that I, I've been able to start organizing is constraints and business impacts. So using, I'm going to go back and use a food analogy, another analogy, which is food. I oftentimes relate the cyber defense matrix and how we do things there and security in general to food. But one of the things that we deal with when we make food is allergies, mm-hmm. okay? How do we organize the information around allergies when it comes to food? I'm not actually sure, but I wanted to think of a way that we can potentially organize the notion of business impacts and, and exceptions and uh, constraints and see if we can put them into the matrix so that I can say, even though I want to exercise some control in one of the boxes in the matrix, I might not be able to do so because of some business impact, Mm -hmm. some constraint that I'm having to deal with. So by capturing that, well, just again, the Marie Kondo aspect of it is at least have a home, I have a bucket, I have a place to put that. And I may not be able to do anything with it right away until I fill that bucket with other things that happen to also be in that bucket, like, for example, controls or requirements or a particular threat or whatever it may be. And 
by organizing it in the same bucket, now we can process what used to be a very uh, complex set of variables and, and conditions. And we've simplified that problem to something where I can now reason over much smaller set of bits of information that helps me know, will this control actually create the business impact? And if so, and what, what sort of business risk or what sort of threats am I mitigating if I, if I put this control in? That allows me to re- resolve something in a much more precise and bounded way uh, that makes the again the problem much easier to re- uh, to to reason through. Sure, yeah, that's that's excellent. So you both wrote in this book, which came out twenty twenty, is that correct? Twenty 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 one. Uh, twenty one. Yeah. Twenty twenty one, and then you both have new books. Caroline, has your new book been released yet? It has. So I wrote a book. It is called the PTAS book. It is available for free digital download. Is it? It is about how to scale manual pen testing, and it is full of comics. Oh, fun. So pen testing as a service is that what it? That's right. Okay, awesome. Can you give us like one or two sentences, like a summary of with the book for people to get even more interested? Sure. So the idea is simply that software development happens really fast. And if we want to secure software, then we need to manually test it for security vulnerabilities. And if we could do that fast and scalable, then maybe we could actually solve some of the world's cybersecurity problems. And the way to do that is to start faster, actually remediate stuff, and to use data. I love it. I know one of you mentioned in modern cybersecurity about how when we when everyone does pen tests, it's usually limited in scope, which isn't great. Attackers aren't looking at just a portion of your of your network. So do you touch on that a little bit as well? Yeah. So here's kind of a startling statistic. When I was working as a BSIM assessor between the years of 2013 and 2016, I conducted more than three dozen BSIM assessments. And so BSIM is a software security assessment. BSIM stands for Building Security and Maturity Model. And I found out by talking to more than three dozen software development teams that most of these teams were doing manual pen testing on less than 10% of their software portfolios. That's like pretty wild, right? Now, in 2021... Cobalt did research, and of the folks that we surveyed, we surveyed more than 600 people around the world. It seems as though that amount has increased such that pen test coverage has increased from about 10% to about 63%, which is great. That's like way better. That is way better. But pen testing historically is a very valuable tool that our industry knows how to use, but does not know how to scale. And I firmly believe that pen testing as a service, PTAS, can actually help folks to scale pen testing. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm looking forward to reading that for sure. It's free online? Is that what you said? It's free. Digital copies online. And I think you can even like write in the web form and say, send me a physical copy. Okay. Everyone listening to this should get a free, like right now. I don't know what you're doing, listener, but you need to go get that immediately. 
read it. Uh, I'm looking at the sign-up page, and uh, Caroline, I have to say, I, I love the uh, caricature. It's great. Whoever it's did that, fun, right? We, yeah. we, we worked with some really amazing graphic designers and creative folks to come up with some, like, kind of a, an enjoyable look and feel. You know, I, I certainly am guilty of purchasing books that I intended to read for informational learning purposes, and then maybe I started and I put it down because it was boring. So we tried to make it accessible and engaging. There's a lot of creative people in this industry as well. And yes. having listened to some of your prior talks, I heard that you wanted to have more of a liberal arts background before you went to college for engineering. So I did. Did you stick with the like dance or anything on the side? Well, I dance on a daily basis, mostly with my children who are three years old and six years old. And I surround myself with self-help books. So I think what I realized was I ended up doing things that I enjoy for fun. And then work can be a different thing and also fun. But thank you so much for the story that you're alluding to, Angela. When I was a teenager, my Chinese immigrant father asked me what I would like to study in college. And I said to him, I would like to study dance or I would like to study psychology. And he said, you're going to study engineering and you're going to do it at the best school you can get accepted to. And so I went to UC Berkeley and I studied electrical engineering and computer science. And I have an entirely different life probably than I might have had if I had studied dance and psychology. Who, who knows? You, who knows? Why I don't know. even ask? I know, totally. <laughs> Dad is so funny because he'll do the, he'll be like, hey, I'm thinking about painting the house. Like, what color do you think I should paint it? And I'll go through the palettes and I'll be like, oh, this looks nice. And then he'll like completely just choose something <laughs> that has nothing to do with my feedback. So I don't know what that's about, but yeah, you know, that, that, that's my dad. Yeah, that's, that's fun though. Good for him though, because honestly, like I wish someone had said that to me, my parents are super chill and they, they're in their seventies now. So they didn't even, they didn't go to college. They just, you know, graduated high school, got jobs and worked forever. So they were like, do whatever you want to do. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. And they're like, you're good at art. You should do that. And I was like, should I? And they're like, you should do what you're good at. And I was like, I'm good at a lot of things. That would be fun. Are you sure? And so like I did that, but then I was like, now what? I should have done something with math or whatever. And, um, you know, three degrees later, here I am. But I think there's a, it's a common refrain for kids of uh, Asian parents to be encouraged to go into law or medicine or something like that. So I have an older brother. And of course, we were pushed to do that as well. Fortunately, my brother became both a doctor and a lawyer. So I, hey, we're set. I, you know, we have a doctor and a lawyer in the family and um, it allows me to go do whatever I wanted to do. Were you always interested in computers, Sunil? I, uh, you know, the proverbial 10,000 hours of uh, practice, uh, I definitely got more than my 10,000 hours of practice on a computer. Sometimes doing good things, sometimes doing some not so good things, but uh, either way, I've had a computer for a good 40 plus years now. Sunil, quick summary on the cyber defense matrix. For those who haven't read it yet, may have read the modern cybersecurity chapter and want more. Yeah, so if you read the modern cybersecurity chapter, it's really a hint to the various use cases of the cyber defense matrix. And the book, The Cyber Defense Matrix, is a more complete articulation of some of the use cases that are in modern cybersecurity that I hint at in modern cybersecurity, but taking it a bit further to elaborate on a couple other use cases that aren't in modern cybersecurity. I'll tell you, when I first set out to write the book, I had like 20 plus use cases I wanted to write about. And if I 
actually tried to do those 20 use, additional use cases, I would still be writing it. So <laughs> just getting out the door with a, a subset of use cases was well, largely actually added necessity because uh, I was trying to meet a certain deadline to get it done for a certain conference that got moved to June. Right, right. But I'm glad to have it out the door. Anyway, that's the book. And actually, one other general thing I would throw out there for your listeners is, uh, well, one of the major reasons why I wrote the book is because I think there's a lot more use cases to be discovered in the cyber defense matrix. So I really hope that people have a chance to crack open the book, read through a couple of use cases and say, you know what, I have an idea for how this could be put to use. And if you have that idea, let me know. Definitely. I'd love to hear it. And I will also, one other enticement is if that use case can be applied in such a way that we can teach it in a workshop format, then I will welcome you to be a co-speaker with me at RSA. So yeah, that, and that's a, that's a free ticket. It, uh, you get speaker privileges, all, all the uh, whiz-bang stuff with, associated with that. Is this the first time you're announcing that or have you announced it previously? I have announced it once elsewhere, but... Um, I'm just going to say you heard it this here. This is the third. second time. Because if you didn't hear it before, this is the first time you're hearing it. So <laughs> I just like to say that. You heard it here first or possibly second. Either way, that's such a good opportunity. Definitely take Sunil up on it. How can people reach you? LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Yeah. And if, if you're reaching out to me on LinkedIn, just drop a note saying, hey, read your book and I have an idea. And I'm more likely to accept that if, uh, if you do something like that. Excellent. And if you say you were found on the Hacker Book Club podcast, you get a discount. Even better. Absolutely nothing. But it would be really cool because that means you listen to this. So since this is the Hacker Book Club, uh, it's not only about books, it's about cybersecurity, hacking, hacking movies, all kinds of stuff we talk about in the, in the actual meetup group. So if you will both be so kind to leave us with a hack, it could be something that you did, something you know of that someone else did or just a general life hack because we all need those please leave us with some knowledge of one from each of you so i am like your classic goody two-shoes i have never hacked anything <laughs> but i do have a life hack that i rely on and actually it's way easier to do in this like pandemic remote first environment which is i sleep <laughs> oh I sleep and I take naps and like sleep is what gives me my superpower. When I am well rested, my brain works way better than it does. And it's like not that exciting. You know, it's not any sort of miracle drug or thing that you can purchase with money. But actually, my life hack is sleep. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book called Why We Sleep, which uh, is great. It, it makes you want to sleep more. So. Um. <laughs> I do want to sleep more constantly. If you can do one thing that will increase your longevity, make you happier, make you smarter, make you all of these things, it's get more sleep. My life hack, whenever I go to my dentist, she, uh, my dentist always asks me, do you floss? I'm like, mm, no. But so I usually try to floss just that day so I can say, <laughs> yes, I floss. Anyway, I, I, I discovered a trick. It's really probably not that much of a trick, but one of the things I hate doing is wasting floss. Sure. Okay. But it turns out if you tie it into a loop, it gives you the tension that you need so that you can floss and not waste a bunch of floss. So just that simple trick of tying a loop so that I can have the right tension has actually allowed me to floss pretty much daily. So I'm um, going to try that. Small, small little life hack to uh, not waste floss and make it slightly more enjoyable. I'm going to try that. That's a great idea. I had a dentist who 
no longer is my dentist, she retired, but this is a joke, this isn't even a life hack. I guess it could be a life hack depending on your style, but she told me that she recommended a water pick to one of her clients that didn't uh, floss much or I guess needed to floss more, whatever the case. And he came back the next time and said, hey, I already had, I already had a water pick. And she goes, really? Because I can't, you know, everything looks the same. What, what kind of water pick did you get? And he goes, you know, in the shower. And he meant like the water pick shower head and I could never like I can't get it out of my mind and I always think of just somebody just being like yes and flossing it's so just good <laughs> so good yeah I'm I'm definitely gonna do this like loop floss yeah for sure tip. that's a really good one that is really good and and go ahead sorry oh no just it's a great life hack Flossing, yeah, it's real, you know, these things we have to do every day, like washing clothes and all the things. I'll take any hack I can get. <laughs> Thank you both so much right. for joining me today. If, you know, anyone listening hasn't read Modern Cybersecurity Tales from the Near and Distant Future, there's many great authors in there, including Sue Neal and Caroline, but definitely read their chapters. They're really good. Also, get your hands on a free copy of Caroline's new book, Pitas free free copy digital copy and then Cyber Defense Matrix by Sunil so many good books to read thank you both I really appreciate it and I look forward to having you on to speak about your respective books later at a further date yay thank you so much for having us and thank you so much for reading keep up keep up the learning learning is where it's at just take naps and read and take naps and read period and you got it What's the last thing, Sunil? Take naps, read, uh, floss. No, Take naps, read, and circular, circular floss. <laughs> Tire yes. floss in a circle. I, I should, you should read first and then take nap and then floss. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's- so good. So good. <laughs> We've got to figure out some sort of like bundle gift package <laughs> where we put all the books together and like wrap it up with floss. floss. And a we should do this. Okay. Yeah. Could do that. <laughs> Thank you both. Level Effect's mission is to make the cyber world a safer place by arming individuals with the knowledge needed to defend themselves and their organizations from digital threats. Learn more at leveleffect.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Book Club podcast with Angela Marafino. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.